welcome to the podcast of Imago Day Community Eastside Gathering. Join us in this Sunday service as we look to the scriptures, seeking to be transformed into the image of Christ. Here on this first Sunday in Advent, uh, Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, which means arrival or coming. And uh, we recognize that we wait in anticipation for the coming of Jesus, who is the central figure in human history. Everything before him and everything after him is different because of who we understand Jesus to be. And his birth shook the political and theological and ecclesiological landscape forever. And so everything is different. And we as the church now for thousands of years have practiced Advent as a rhythm and as a way of preparing for him to shake us and to shake our worlds and to shake our reality. In 1992, there was an essay that was published and passed around academic circles written by a scholar by the name of Francis Fukuyama. And Fukuyama wrote this essay, and the essay is called The End of History. And in it, Fukuyama has a simple thesis. And here it is. History, he says, is built on great ideas. A great idea comes along, and when it does, a society will wrap itself around that idea, and it will change all of its cultural system, and everything will be different because of, of this great idea. And these great ideas, they very rarely come along. But this being the case, according to Fukuyama, he believes that we've come to the idea, to the end of history, because the last great idea has expressed itself. History indefinitely will forever be wrapped around the final great idea. So what is it, you ask? What is this last great idea that ends history? Well, according to Fukuyama, it is democratic capitalism. Huh, really, you might ask. Democratic capitalism, that's, that's the answer. That's the last great idea. Well, before you kind of immediately dismiss the thesis, consider this, that the two ideological challenges of the 21st century and of the 20th century, fascism in the 30s and socialist, Marxist socialism have both failed to compete with democratic capitalism. And over the long arc, democratic capitalism has been spreading its message of freedom across the world and it has aggregated and built more wealth in the history of the world than we have ever seen. I suppose, in in my view though, the problem that we face is that in America and in the West, democratic capitalism is fueled by this unique brand of consumerism and individualism. And I fear that we have come to a place where community is no longer required to live. 
And that much of this ideal stands in direct opposition to the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth. And what makes the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth so important is that he, the God-man, is filled with the Holy Spirit and he's offering a way through him to live. And he gives us a picture of this as he talks about the kingdom of God where he's giving a message of what human flourishing would look like. You see, more than any other topic in all of the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the central message of Jesus is the kingdom of God. Everywhere he went, he he taught about this new reign of God that was very different than what people expected. And it's very different than what the government systems had, had built. And it accesses a very different leadership style than what is intuitive to those in the religious or the political hierarchy. The reign of God challenged the status quo of first century Palestine, and it does today. The reign of God, it is, it's not a dictatorship, and it's not a more perfect democracy. It's a whole new world where generosity and hospitality break categories. It's unpredictable. It's affective in its dimension, and it's versatile. And as we celebrate and begin Advent, we recognize that that the kingdom of God breaks in in a way that no one expects. In Matthew chapter 2, Jesus is born in Bethlehem, and the political world is taking notice. You begin to acknowledge that there's these three kings who have come from the east And they're anticipating this new king, this new Messiah that that Israel has been waiting on for 3,400 years. And these kings come and they go to Herod and they're looking for this new king, acknowledging that everything is different now. Herod's ear is kind of bent and these three kings go and find Jesus. Herod is upset and he wants to know where the king is. And simultaneously as these magi in Matthew 2, lay down their gifts in front of this baby king born to two unsuspecting teenagers. They recognize that they cannot go back to Herod and they cannot go back to where they've come from because there is a new king and there is a new kingdom. Everything turns in this moment. And so we ought to lean into this idea of what is the kingdom. According to Jesus, this comes from the Gospels. The kingdom of God, it is a farmer sowing seed. The kingdom of God is a man hunting treasure, a woman kneading dough. It's fishermen casting a net. It's a man who's been forgiven a debt. It's a wedding guest who forgot his jacket or virgins waiting for a bridegroom. It's a landowner being generous. The kingdom of God, according to Jesus, is like a seed or a pearl or a fish, a banquet, a vineyard, or it's active like yeast being kneaded into dough. It's random or hidden. It's surprising and it's disruptive and it's totally unexpected. It begins so small that it could go unnoticed. And yet, it's something you receive and you enter. 
The kingdom of God, according to Jesus, is something that you cultivate, that you seek, and that you grab hold of. You wait for it, you prepare for it, and you stay ready for it. It's something of great value, and it's something that you need to discover. It blows up the status quo. It reverses values, and it turns expectations on their head. The kingdom of God is a celebration. It's a party. It's a feast, and you are invited to attend. Turn with me, if you have your Bibles, to Luke chapter 7. If you don't have your Bibles, it's okay. It'll be here on the screen. And I want to read a a lengthy section of Scripture here. Luke 7, starting in the 36th verse. Read with me. When one of the Pharisees... Now, let me make a parenthetical note here. When you see the word Pharisee in this passage... What I'd like you to do is insert the words religious political insider. Every time you see the word Pharisee, insert the words religious political insider. Start again. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. She wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet... He would know who's touching him and what kind of a woman this is. I mean, this is a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. And now Jesus is going to give a parable. So follow along in the parable of Jesus. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon, the Pharisee, replied, well, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. And Jesus said, you judged correctly. And then Jesus turns toward the woman, and he says to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume out on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown, but whoever has been forgiven little loves little. And then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. 
In this passage, in Luke 7, we have this juxtaposition between a religious political insider and a woman who's only given the title sinner. And make no mistake, in this contrast, this is a contrast of a, that, that brings forward a power differential. But I think more than even that, Jesus is trying to highlight a differential of hospitality. We, as the people of God, as we understand who Jesus is, we are the people who acknowledge that we are broken much. That we are our experience of a powerlessness against sin. And as a result of that, we find ourselves postured at the feet of Jesus, acknowledging that we're in desperate need for what he has done on Calvary. We're the people who understand that we're in a position of helplessness. And we are the people that understand that we are forgiven much and it creates this new currency in the kingdom that we who have been forgiven much should also dispense forgiveness. We who receive grace should also dispense it. And that this is this new fuel for the kingdom of God. It's out of this forgiveness where the woman demonstrates a radical hospitality to Jesus. And it's where we, as the Jesus people, should go into the secure places, to the vault or to the bank and bring out our alabaster jar and break it for Jesus. One of the things that I love about Imago is that we are a people who dream together. We are a people who are actively anticipating what God is up to in the world. And we practice hospitality and generosity as this currency that I'm talking about in the kingdom. One of the ways that we do that is we try to posture the church to be a community where pastors don't start a bunch of stuff, that what we look to are the people of the church and the people of the community to bring forward new ideas because you are the ones that are on the streets hearing and listening for what God is up to in the world and you're traveling almost like the Magi wondering where is the king and how do we lay down our gifts at his feet? And every year we've built in an annual kind of structural opportunity for the people of Imago to practice this daring way of living in the kingdom. And we have what we call missional grants, where there's a set of funds that are set aside for people of Imago to bring forward ideas where they could compete for resources, to be able to um, go out into the world and share the message of Jesus. And in 2012, there were three families in Imago who wrote a missional grant they wrote a missional grant because they were foster parents and they wanted to encourage Imago and encourage the church of Portland to engage in the, in the challenges that we face in our community as it relates to the most vulnerable children and families. These families at Imago decided that it was time. It was time for the people of God to step into a new space 
and to create this new space of radical hospitality between the church and the government. And so they wrote a proposal and did a deep dive. And here's what we learned. In the mid 20th century, when the family unit began to break down, the neighborhood did not know how to respond. And as a result, the state of Oregon or the legislature passed a bill that started a new government agency called the Department of Human Services or DHS for short. And this bill was designed to build a system that would take care of the most vulnerable kids and families in the community. And it started in 1971. Between 1971 and today, the Department of Human Services has grown to become the largest government agency in Oregon. It has a biennium budget of $10.3 billion. There are almost 10,000 people that work for DHS, and this statistic will blow your mind. One out of every four Oregonians are right now, as we sit here, directly involved with DHS. And they're involved looking for some sort of cash assistance or rent assistance or help finding a job. Or they are vulnerable kids who have been abused or neglected in their current living situation and have entered foster care. And as we learned more and more about what's going on with DHS, we also began to realize that this is the space that the church has been absent in. And yet we are the people that are predisposed to be present there. And so this grant bubbled up from the pews of Imago. And the idea was to reflect Jesus into the community and to begin to build a new posture where the people of God would simply go to the church and ask, or go to DHS and ask, how can we help? And when we asked, how can we help you? We learned that there is a crisis shortage of foster families. Last week, at one, there's, there's eight DHS child welfare offices in the Tri-County area. Last week, at one office, off 122nd, in an old Target, there were 17 children who came into foster care. And in a city of 2.3 million people, there were zero homes to take in those children. And as a result, DHS was forced to seek emergency placement for these kids. And they found placement for 10 of them. And seven of those children out of the 17 on the worst moment of their life, where there was no home for them, slept last week in a hotel room with two caseworkers. Because in a city of 2.3 million people, there were no families prepared to open up a bedroom for them. So we as a MAGO decided that we don't want to live in a city like this anymore. That we as the people of God who anticipate the arrival of Jesus are the hospitable ones. And so we decided to do something about it and we built something called Embrace Oregon. Embrace Oregon. 
disaster struck our city and thousands of children were left alone or scared, a state of emergency would ensue. We'd all rush to the front lines, taking children in, bringing supplies, searching for survivors. The foster care system in our city and our state faces a similar disaster. In the last year, more than 11,000 Oregon children were in foster care, 30% in the Portland metro area. Each week, children are split from their siblings or bounced from one home to another because of the lack of foster homes. God's heart is for the vulnerable. In our city, his people are responding in massive ways to come alongside children and families served by our state's Department of Human Services. This is a movement of churches adopting their local child welfare offices, helping in small ways, from staff appreciation lunches to building welcome boxes, donating bunk beds, volunteering time to entertain children as they enter foster care, and becoming foster families at a record rate. Love, compassion, and hospitality are coming around DHS, but the crisis continues. We are asking you to join this movement of the church, to respond, to radically love children in foster care, and to overwhelm our state's child welfare system with hospitality from the outside in. It's time to act. It's time to embrace Oregon. So with Imago Day leading the way, since 2013, over 125 churches have gotten directly involved with their local DHS office. We've seen 3,500 volunteers mobilize, and every, every month at each local office, there's a local church who steps forward to provide hospitality to those folks who work at DHS just to say thanks for what you do. So whether it is a lunch or an ice cream or a latte, the people of God are regularly stepping into this space. And in spite of all of these numbers and all of these, these new volunteer opportunities that have been put forward, the outcome I'm most proud of is relational. You see, this is a story of women and men, wives and husbands who have submitted themselves to the feet of Jesus. And they serve within a Jesus mandate that says, care for vulnerable kids, care for vulnerable families. And families are rising. In 2015, through Embrace Oregon, which started at Imago Day, we had 172 families inquire to become foster families in 2015. But check this out. By the end of October in 2016, with two months left in the year, we've had 405 families inquire to step up to care for kids, all coming from the local church. It's a record in the history of Oregon. It's a 300% increase, a 300% increase from any other time in the history of Oregon. And Oregon is taking notice. And so I want you to hear from a 21st century local Embrace Oregon foster phenom mom as she pours open her alabaster jar. The call came from a DHS supervisor at midnight we have a three-year-old girl at the hospital 
Her mom was shot and is not expected to live through the night. Her dad has been arrested, domestic violence. All clothing was was taken by police as evidence, so if you could bring a blanket, that would be great. Can you come pick her up? Yes. The call came from a CPS worker while I was making dinner. I just came on the scene to find a four-year-old boy sitting in the back of a police car. His clothing is soaked with urine from his mentally unstable mother. He may have lice, and he is filthy. Can we bring him to your house? Yes. The call came from another county as we were getting ready for bed. We have a two-year-old who's sound asleep at the DHS office right now. She was brought to the ER with with an injury. Her mom was so high on drugs she could hardly function. This little girl is absolutely adorable. We just need someone who can take her for the night. Could you? Yes. The call came from the placement desk while I was in the middle of a run. We have a tiny 10-day-old baby boy. Things aren't working out in his current foster home and we need to move him. Do you have an infant car seat? Yes. 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 My husband and I are biological parents to two young kids as well as foster parents to a revolving crew of kids under the age of five. A friend who also fosters once told me that calls from DHS are like a create your own adventure game. Each yes takes your family on a wild new adventure and you could never expect it. I always wonder, what adventure are we missing out on with the calls that we don't take? We say yes because these babies need a safe place to land. They need a mommy to wrap them up in blankets and tuck them in at night. They need a daddy to hoist them up on his shoulders and gallop them around the backyard. They need clothing that fits and food that nourishes. They need to be tickled and trained and taken to the zoo. They need boundaries and they need love. I've been surprised to find out how much we need these little people too. They are sweet and feisty and stubborn and funny. They keep us on our toes and they teach us lessons we need to learn. People tell me all the time, I don't know how you do it. I could never be a foster parent. It would be too hard to say goodbye to the kids once I've gotten attached. And I get it, I do. I used to say the exact same thing. But now, I wonder, what in the world was I thinking? Was I serious? It would be too hard for me? I mean, make no mistake, it is hard. There are plenty of days when I feel like I just don't have it in me to do this. My ideas and energy and patience fall flat. Some kids have night terrors and others have accidents and you wash a lot of sheets and you fold a lot of socks and you buy a lot of diapers. And there are endless meetings of appointments and, and phone calls. There are false accusations and frustrating decisions. Foster parenting can be tough. And yet these kids are forced to do hard things every single day through no fault or choice of their own. They're abused and neglected and forced to fend for themselves. They're separated from siblings and shuffled from place to place. Kids in the foster care system have endured more hurt in their short lives than most of us will pause to think about, let alone even experience in our own. And so the next phone call will come. 
My husband and I will say yes. Not because we are some amazing poster family for foster care. We will say yes because these kids are forced to do hard things. And the least we can do is look into their broken eyes and say, yes, I will do hard things with you. I will hold your hand and kiss your head and calm your tantrums. And by God's grace, we will figure this out together. And when it is time to say goodbye, I will wash their clothes and pack their stuffed animals and I will ache and cry and wish it could be different. But I will never regret saying yes. Can you hear it? Can you hear Advent and the coming of the King in that? Can you hear the kingdom? Can you see this woman's tears falling on the feet of Jesus? Can you see how she's poured out her oil for the king? We've earned the right the church has to be heard within the state of Oregon. And so right now, we're working hand in hand with elected officials and appointed government leaders in Salem who previously would not have considered working with the church or faith communities in Oregon. And on December 15th, on the steps of the Capitol, we'll be holding a press conference with Governor Brown where we will be announcing that Embrace Oregon will be scaling to all 36 counties in the next five years. And that started at Imago. Why? Why would, why would the state of Oregon do this? Because they've come to recognize that there are a group of people in Oregon who subscribe to this ethic that comes from a king who was born in a manger in Bethlehem. And this ethic and his teachings sound like this. Open your home to a stranger. Lay down your life for someone else. It is better to give than it is to receive. It is better to be last than it is to be first. You see, they've come to realize that the most likely people to step forward into this space to demonstrate radical generosity, to demonstrate radical hospitality, to say yes, are the Jesus people. Greatness in the kingdom of God is not given to those who rule or who are elected. Greatness in the kingdom of God comes to those who serve. We are the ones who aren't quick to aggregate power and to build our own kingdom. We are the ones who give away power, who demonstrate vulnerability, and who put our weight on Jesus. And perhaps more than any other week, in a really, really long time, when you think of all that's going on in the world, we need to remember this because Fukuyama was wrong. 
The last great idea is not democratic capitalism. The last great idea is this. The principalities and the powers and the systems of this world will fall short. And it is the kingdom reality broken in by a baby. This upside down reality of the kingdom of God where God's people demonstrate radical generosity and hospitality. Where you, as you walk out from the doors today, will go into the community and say, I'm here to represent together an altogether different kind of king. And I believe that when we are together in such a way, it reflects what is most true. That Jesus, in his life, and in his death, and in his resurrection, he is the last great idea. And so this morning, as we come to the table, we come to the table on a journey. We come to the table with tears streaming, with our oil ready to be poured out. And I ask that as I invite you now to the table, that you would come and place yourself at the feet of the king that you would submit your lives, your money and your time and your energy and your relationships, that you'd lay it all down at the king. That you'd come to a place where Advent would be a story of radical hospitality in the name of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we, we are the brothers and sisters who have made the decision that we are better together than we are apart. We are the brothers and sisters who have come to recognize that we are broken and we are helpless without you. And Lord, we are the brothers and sisters who are prepared to pour out all that we have at your feet. And so this morning, God, I pray that as we come to the table, we would have an awareness of how it is that you're asking us to go into the world and to break the categories as a way of celebrating Advent that we would take the dare as a way of celebrating Advent, as we anticipate your coming and your arrival, we don't do it waiting and sitting back, we do it active and on the move. So I thank you God for this community that has said we will, we will step forward and I pray for them as they step forward now. In Jesus' name, amen.
We pray that God will use this message to strengthen your faith and draw you into a deeper relationship with himself. If you're interested in hearing other sermons or want more information about the church, please visit our website at idceastside.com. Thanks for listening.